With Fidelity Wealth Management, a dedicated advisor can work with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Plus, you'll have access to specialists in estate planning strategies. So you're not just growing and protecting your wealth, you're sharing it. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Saturday, December 5th. And yesterday we did get the November jobs report. And uh, the, the numbers weren't quite as good as we would have liked. The economy added 245,000 jobs and the unemployment rate, it edged down to 6.7%. You know, in, in normal times, a 245,000 job month would be a good one. But of course, these are not normal times. And what we see in this report is the pace of job growth is really slowing down. Just to remind you, we lost 22 million jobs between March and April. Most of that happening in April. And then we had huge numbers in May and June. But over the course of the last seven months, job creation has decelerated. And that's not good news especially considering the pandemic is raging and there are likely to be more and more closures of towns and cities across the country. We've got a long way to go before that vaccine gang, so please be careful. Meanwhile, shifting gears, we have such a great interview this weekend. You may have heard of an author named Annie Duke. Annie Duke wrote a book called Thinking in Bets. Annie Duke's new book is called How to Decide. Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. So in this first part of the interview, we're going to talk about why human beings, why we conflate our outcomes and our decision making. Here's our interview with Annie Duke. Why do we do this? Why do we conflate outcome and decision making? Yeah, so this is, this is a problem which is called resulting. And you can see why. It's basically saying if I know what the result is, then that tells me whether the decision is good you know, if the result is good, the decision is good. If the result is bad, it, the decision is bad. And I think there's a couple of reasons why we do it. Uh, there's a process called substitution where when something is like really hard to judge, then we'll substitute something that's easier to judge. So it's actually hard to tell for most decisions uh, whether they're good or bad. They're, they're mostly not as clear as I went through a red light or a green light. They're things like, you know, should I have hired that person that worked out or didn't or uh, should I have uh, chosen a particular sales strategy over another? Should I have spent so much time with that client that I ended up not closing? These are things that are actually quite hard to answer in terms of what the quality of the decision process is. But judging the quality of the outcome is quite easy. You know, it's essentially I won or lost. It worked out poorly or not. And we end up substituting the judgment of that for the judgment of the decision quality. So I think that that's one reason why we get this resulting thing. And then I think the other reason is that while there are many, many futures, there's only one past. And once we know what the past is, it feels like it had to be that way, that that was the only thing that could have actually happened. And if it's the only thing that could have actually happened, then that would tell you what you need to know about the decision. You know, if it was destiny that I was going to have a bad outcome, then the decision to do whatever I did must have been poor. And if it was destiny that I was going to have that good outcome, then the decision to do what I did must have been great. But the world isn't deterministic in that way. There's, there's, I mean, just plain influence of luck for one thing. I love the idea 
that you put luck front and center. I really do. Because as you said, you know, you can blow through a red light and not get into an accident. You were lucky, right? Talk about luck and even resulting amid a pandemic. I think that there are a lot of people who are running around this country and saying, you know, I've been around people for the last eight months. Nothing's happened to me the past. Therefore, I will continue this behavior. That's how I made my decision. Talk a little bit about the luck aspect of this. Yeah, so actually that's really insightful. And I I think it's really important because I think some people say, well, what's the problem with resulting? And the problem with resulting is that it actually affects the decisions that you make in the future. And as you just said, with a pandemic, that can cause you to make some very bad decisions that have quite uh, enormous consequences. So basically what happens is that obviously you, you can make horrible decisions and have a good outcome because the outcome is probabilistic. So anytime that you go out and you're around other people, there's some probability that you can get coronavirus, but it's not anywhere close to 100% of the time. But you are taking on risk. So if I go to a large political rally and I don't wear a mask or I go into a grocery store and I don't wear a mask or I have people over to my house and I don't wear a mask, we can take like, you know, as an example, I think in in New York right now, um, it might be a little higher now, but a few days ago, if you gathered with 10 people, there was a 10% chance that one of those people had coronavirus. But obviously that means that 90% of the time you're going to come away unscathed. So when you have those people over to your house and you happen to be lucky, you know, have nobody have coronavirus, and then it turns out fine and nothing happens to you, you then think, will think that that's a good decision and you'll repeat it. But as anybody in finance knows, when you have a 10% chance of a bad outcome and you keep repeating that, it doesn't take long until there's a 100% chance that you actually end up in front of somebody with coronavirus indoors without a mask, and guess what? You're going to get sick. Then you're going to spread that to other people. So I think that we, what we don't understand is that just because something worked out fine, I had 10 people over to my house and, and nothing happened, it doesn't mean it was a good decision because at least in New York right now, there's a 10% chance that somebody has coronavirus. And by the way, if you're in a place like the Dakotas now, you know, you're in the 70 or 80% chance that among those 10 people, someone has coronavirus. This seems to me a problem of people who don't understand how statistics work. And I'm just going to bring myself back to, say, 2016, when I remember walking out of the CBS broadcast center on election day, and somebody looked at me and he says, Clinton all the way, huh? I said, what makes you say that? He's, you know, I, you know, it looks like a 70% chance Clinton. And I said, do you understand on a probability basis how massive a 30% chance is? Right. And, and like, do you understand like how that is insane in terms of the way that statistics work? So I'm wondering if sometimes, I, and I've been thinking about this with the polling, with the virus, that people just really have a hard time with the math or the theory behind all of this. How can we help them understand this a little bit better? There's actually a bias, which is that we tend to think in binaries or dichotomies. So it's a binary thinking bias. So that's kind of what's happening in the Clinton example, right? It's very hard for us to sort of say that, you know, she has a 70% chance of winning and instead we want to think about it as win or loss. 
And you can see that in the pandemic as well. People think about live or die as an example, and that you don't, they don't think in between, which is, well, what if I get it, but then I'm sick for six months or there's long-term damage or how long am I going to be sick? What's that going to be like? They, they want to just think about the dichotomy, live or die. I think that there's a couple of ways to help people to really think probabilistically a little bit better. One is to actually create some stakes around it. So one of the ways that I got people to that place with the Clinton example was to say like, well, imagine that you had a gun that had 10 chambers in it and three of those chambers were had bullets in them. Would you play Russian roulette? Mm-hmm. And of course, the answer immediately is no. Right. Right. So, so when you all of a sudden force them into thinking about the consequences of whatever that probability is, which 30% is quite significant, it actually helps them to get there. That's one thing that you can do. Another thing you can do is actually get people to live in what the other things that could have happened were. So uh, if you think about something like, you know, well, I hired this person and they didn't work out. So therefore, it must have been a terrible decision because you're not thinking probabilistically about, you know, what are the other things that could have happened and what were the likelihoods of those? You can have someone essentially reconstruct those trees and you can say, well, what were the other ways that it could have turned out? Mm -hmm. How were you thinking about it at the time? What did you think about the possible outcomes were? How likely did you think those were? And if you actually have people do that work, then they can start to sort of get sight of what that full tree is. Because you can kind of think about it, again, going back to this idea of there's only one past, right? There's only one thing that happens. And we tend to think about that as deterministic. So just by reminding people about what all the other things that could have happened were, and that each of those had some chance of occurring, it helps people to get back into that probabilistic zone. I loved that tree so much. So essentially, instead of looking at binary, you sort of you you say, let me think of this like a tree, and I'm going to have all the branches. And and normally, as you write, what we do is we sort of chop off all the other limbs of the tree and say, right. here was my decision. So talk a little bit about how one might build the tree. And I loved your example of how you decide to move to a different city to take a job. So talk a little bit about building that decision tree and also how you will likely have a better outcome. You know, let's say that I'm trying to take, I'm thinking about taking a job. And the example I give is, let's say you live in the South and you're trying to decide whether to take a job in Boston. And the reason that I use that is that it adds some uncertainty because you don't, you don't necessarily know how you're going to do with the weather if you've only lived in the South your whole life. Basically, instead of thinking about it as a binary, like it's either going to be great or it's not. Think about what the reasonable outcomes for that are. So so I give some suggestions in the book, like it could be you love the job, but you hate Boston. It could be you love the job and you love Boston. It could be the job is okay and you really love Boston. So, you know, since you don't like the job that much, you actually end up getting a different job, but you stay in Boston. You know, it could be that you become a, like a winter sports enthusiast And you don't really care whether you like your job or not because you just like the city so much. Um, It could be that you hate both of them and you end up moving back home. So you basically think about what are the possible ways it could turn out. If If you were to translate that into like a hiring decision, you could think about, you can also think about it not as kind of broad scenarios, but maybe there's some feature of the decision that you really care about. So if you're hiring because you're trying to reduce turnover, as an example, because your recruitment costs are through the roof, you could say, I'm hiring a candidate. Let me think about... Uh, is the candidate going to be with us in six months? 
will they be with us in six months to 18 months? Will they be with us beyond 18 months? So you could hone in, for example, on a particular feature that you really cared about of the decision. And then once you've done that and you figured out what those possibilities are, then what you want to do is kind of order them by preference and then figure out how likely do you think those things are to occur? Because really, that's what a decision is. And that's why you want to do this explicitly. Even if I'm doing something really simple, like trying to decide between ordering the chicken and the fish in a restaurant, really, that's a probabilistic forecast. What I'm saying is that I think that I am more likely, although not guaranteed, to like the chicken better than the fish. So there's some probability that you're going to like the chicken. There's some probability that you're going to like the fish. And in fact, it could be more likely than not that you would like both. But the fact that you've chosen the chicken implies that you think there's a higher probability that you'll enjoy the chicken. This is what we do with every decision, simple ones and complex ones. So if we actually take the time to map out these trees and forecast what we think the likelihood are, we're going to just be better decision makers. And you actually have sort of a a, a definition of what makes a good tool. You say that it can be reliably repeated, Mm -hmm. um, that it can be taught to someone else, and I love the third part, which is after you've used that tool, you can look back and examine whether you used it properly or not. So, Annie, tell us how you've done your decision making and looked back and and maybe said, oh, this was the right process. This was the wrong process. Tell us a little bit about that in your own life. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. So that's such a good description of what a good tool is. So you can see how like a screwdriver fits that definition, right? I can mm-hmm. I can use it for the same pers- purpose reliably. I could teach you how to use it. And then we could look at how I used it to figure out if I did a good job. And one, one thing I just want to say there is that that's why your gut is a terrible decision tool. You can't actually improve the decision making of your team by saying, well, you know, I felt it in my gut, I, you know, because obviously then they can't repeat the process or understand how you did it. And you can't go back and examine whether you did it well, which, by the way, is the only reason that you can learn, right, if you can go back and examine your decision process. So for me, I mean, I can take an example from poker. You know, what I would do with a poker hand is obviously I'm in the process of making, I'm doing the hand. I I can't record the hand in the same way that I can a longer decision process because poker is happening very quickly. But then if I wanted to understand what I thought about the hand, what I'd do is come to you and I would really run the hand in an iterative way. So I would know what my reasoning was. I would have some jotting down of my reasoning for the hand and exactly what happened so that I could remember the moves in the hand and why I wanted to do them. So I would have that in hand and then I can go to you and I could say, uh, somebody raised in front of me and I would give you the facts you need to know about the game, like what the stack sizes were, um, what positions they were in and so on and so forth. Uh, And I would say, and then I look down at ace queen, I'd love to know what you think I should have done. Mm. And notice I already know what I I did, but I don't want to sort of bias you with my own opinion because I want to see what your view of what I did is. So I have some record of my thinking and my rationale and what I did. I'm not sharing that with you, though, as I'm getting your advice. And this actually allows for that really good examination of how I use the screwdriver, because you're now able to offer your own opinion about what tools you think, you know, we would want to use there and how you would process that. And I can now compare that against my process. I think it's so interesting to be able to bring somebody else in to the process also, especially if you're thinking about this in terms of teams or your, your organization at work. And as you say, hiring, you know, so we, I'm, I'm looking at it from both angles, which is so often you say, I went through this process 
and I have a process for hiring and we brought this person on and we went through the whole, the whole rigmarole and the person still flamed out. It's interesting to gather the team up and say, did we actually step away from our process in some way? You do work with organizations, right? Doesn't that happen a lot? Like there's actually a procedure and then they don't follow it? Yeah. So I think number one is that they they don't follow it. And number two is that a lot of when they're thinking about the procedures, they're doing them in group settings. And so what does that mean? It's not that you shouldn't have discussion in group settings. I'm not saying that. It's that what should happen before you get into the group setting should be independent and asynchronous. So if we're thinking about a particular candidate that we're going to hire, what we want to think about is exactly what does success look like for that candidate. We want to figure out what that is. And then we want to figure out what do we think the signals are from that candidate, the qualities that we're looking for that would tell us that we're going to get the success that we're looking for. So it may be like, for example, we have some definition and we would want to define these terms. We have some definition of what a good mentor would be. And this is something that we think is incredibly important to that person being a successful hire. So we would put that on our hiring rubric uh, where we would want to rate their mentorship, what we think their mentorship abilities is going to be on on a scale of zero to five. Uh, We may just want to know like what on a scale of zero to five, like what are their data analysis skills if we're hiring for that. But you figure out what what all those things that you think are really important in terms of a successful hire, really make those explicit and then uh, make sure that you're eliciting feedback on those features in some way that's quite precise. So even though you have a subjective judgment, it doesn't mean you can't be precise in the way you express it. That's why you would say on a scale of zero to five, how good of a mentor do we believe that this person's going to be? Now, when you do that rubric, though, what generally happens is you'll have something like that and then everybody discusses it in a group. The problem there is that you'll generally start talking a lot about consensus and you'll actually shut the process down too early because once you start to see consensus build, there'll generally be velocity behind that consensus. And then you don't actually explore what everybody's opinions actually are. And particularly as there's consensus, people who have corrective or negative perspectives on what the consensus of the group is will be unlikely to express it. So instead, if you take the group and you give each member of the group the rubric and have them offer their opinions independently prior to actually talking about it in the group, and then bring those together into some sort of central hub sorted into general areas of agreement and general areas of dispersion of opinion, now when you come into the group, you can acknowledge the areas of agreement, which frankly are kind of uninteresting. We both believe the earth is round, okay? And you can focus on the areas where there's dispersion. And the reason why that's really important is it's kind of the opposite of the way that group discussions tend to work, which get very group thinky. And why do you have a team in the first place? You have a team so that you can get different perspectives. You can access different mental models. You can understand the different facts that people are bringing to bear on the types of opinions and judgments that they're making. And this actually allows you to see what the group thinks to improve the information that's going into the decision process, which is the thing you really have control over. Beyond just having a good process, that's pretty easy to do. It's how do you improve the quality of the information that you're inputting into that process? And this is really one of the main ways to do that. Well, thanks for listening. We'll have part two of our interview with Annie Duke tomorrow. If you have a financial question, don't hesitate to give us a shout. Our email address is askjill at jillonmoney.com. That's askjill at jillonmoney.com. As always, we remind you to wash your hands, to wear your masks, to maintain your physical distancing, and do something nice for someone else today. It'll make you feel better. It will make them feel better. Talk to you tomorrow.